and welcome to the Raptors Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network, brought to you by Campbell's new Chunky Spicy Soup. It's time to get fired up. Make sure you find the Raptors Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. And please rate and review the show. I'm your host, Wayne Lou. I'm joined by co-host Blake Murphy. Today on the program, we're going to talk a lot about Victor Wemanyama in the second segment. We're going to check in on how OG Anobi is doing as well in segment two. But uh, first, Blake, Raptors played two games over the weekend. Super Bowl took place over the weekend. Um, you know, you and I got some daps from Fred. Where do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, you you said so fired up, and I, I sang it in my head to the tune of so caught up. Oh, because uh, we got a little, a little Usher uh, Usher performance yesterday. It was what do you think? I know you're a huge Usher. Oh, guy. I was so happy because look, I I was a little bit worried because Usher could also play like a lot of his like newer hits. Stuff like that, you know. He didn't play a single new song off that album that dropped Friday. Uh, nobody was trying to hear that. No offense to Usher, man. I'm sorry. Um, I'm stuck in 2004, so, you know, uh, it was great to hear, you know, pretty much, com- like, what, five out- songs off of Confessions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful time, man. Beautiful time. What about you? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was awesome. The The roller skating bit was roller on the skating. wardrobe. Uh, I <laughs> yeah. thought her was awesome on the guitar, yeah. uh, which was a really nice, obviously, Alicia Keys, like, and oh, then yeah. the, the one that was... Uh, I mean, Luda coming out for the, oh, the yeah. yeah versus like obviously that's look if you were if you were at a club at yeah, any yeah. point or a bar or anything like that if you were yeah anything in the years of like two thousand I don't know six to two thousand twelve like mm-hmm. you heard that song so many so many times so I realized listening to like Usher do his like Usher medley was like I have grown up with Usher in a way that like when I was at Welcome Week in university like it just People could not stop playing Oh My God for some reason. Um, and then when I was growing up, I had so many memories of just like being in the car, listening to Flow 93.5 and just like singing along to to Usher as like a 10-year-old. And I'm <laughs> like, why am I singing along to Usher as a 10-year-old? Like I didn't have a baby with someone else. No. <laughs> but yeah, it was just a very nostalgic time. So I was, I was very happy to see Usher, uh, like like you mentioned, yeah. when Ludacris came out too, it was sick. You know, um, the usher, like, had steady. I'm gonna milk the cow, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, forget about game. Um, yeah, it also makes me wonder, like, um, his residency in Vegas, mm. um, like, man, it's. I, I'd imagine for a residency show, like, you you do the same set list every single night because everyone's coming expecting like just the hits and stuff. It's probably really good. Oh, if you got it, if you get the paid. To do concerts and you never travel, I think artists will be very, very happy. So yeah. I'm happy for Usher. The new album, I'm not going to be checking it out, no. though. I'm sorry. He was like uh, Shaq levels of sweaty at the free, like Shaq at the oh, free yeah. throw line. Yeah. He, my dude had to get down to topless because he was so, I mean, it's I part mean, of come the on, bit it's as Usher, well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like then goes and puts on like a bright vest with a big jacket on right. top of it to go roller skate around. I mean, it's, you should, it's safety first. You got to have reflective clothing if you're going to go yeah. on roller skates. Um, do, you, do you like the Super Bowl itself, though? Like, yeah, overtime, I mean, first half, like first half was a little slow to get first going. Half, but first half was nasty Second half was great. You know, you get to see some of the adjustments, some of the tactical stuff. That I, I don't know football nearly as well as I know, you know, basketball and baseball and, and hockey and stuff. But you, you pick up a little bit of it. The cool game theory stuff around like, ah, should you kick or receive in overtime with the new yeah. overtime rules? And then honestly, just to kind of see that level of, like Patrick Mahomes on a day where like the offense didn't really have it that much and still to find a way your third Super Bowl, you're only the fifth quarterback to do that now. Like you're starting to get in some conversations. You're young and have 
uh, a lot of years ahead of you. It was also um, statistically like based on there's a stack called DVOA, which is basically like like how we try to adjust net rating for strength of schedule and stuff like that. Okay. This was the hardest Super Bowl path of all time. Mm, so for the like Kansas that. City Chiefs who okay. were like banged up and like don't have good receivers and like Mahomes wasn't at his best, they still went through yeah. statistically the toughest road of all time and won the Super Bowl. I like that. And now he's like, okay, in the inner circle of quarterbacks, championship, he got a lot of time left too. As somebody who doesn't watch football at all except for the Super Bowl, I was like, Shocked by how often they kept saying the words dynasty. Yeah. Like just like, is, is this officially a dynasty? I'm like, man, you're forcing this storyline way yeah. too much. Like, you just gotta move on. Like, just yeah. ask them about how cool it was to win the Super Bowl. But yeah. yeah, and it's like like in in football, it's it's like the Patriots had a dynasty, but it's more like the Spurs style dynasty where you stay good yeah, for right. a long time and that keeps you in the mix mm-hmm. for you know, winning four, like scattering four championships around ten years or something like that. It's uh it's a lot more difficult, I think. And and they are in a salary cap as well. So similar to the NBA, you make tough decisions about who's going to move on. Like part of the Patriots thing was always Tom Brady did the Tim Duncan thing and didn't take the max um, for, for years and years. So right. um, those are the kind of, and that like, that's why Kansas city lets Tyreek Hill, the, the best, even though we don't like him, mm. uh, take the best receiver in football and let him walk because, Hey, you got Patrick Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes could turn rice or, or whoever else into that guy or, or just lean on Travis Kelsey more. Um, so yeah, it was cool. It's, it's fun. And like the Steph parallels are, uh, that we discussed last week yeah. are, are always fun to, to look at as well. Also, I mean, you talked to him down a shoot around. How fired up was Grady Dick? Oh, Grady was really excited. So yeah, Grady was talking about, um, he had a little watch party at some restaurant, big TV kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Jordan Wara probably declined the invite after the, the Chiefs <laughs> took out the Bills. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he was there. A bunch of other rappers were there, though. I think he shared that little video with, like, Marquise Noel and Scotty Barnes. Um, I think Gary, some other guys were there, too. So, in any case, yeah, he's a big fan, obviously. He, he grew up in Kansas, so it's, like, close enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, no, he was he was pretty fired up. I was surprised he didn't actually – I guess it was shoot-around, so he just had Raptor gear on, but – I would be very surprised if he didn't wear some kind of Chiefs gear into the arena tonight. Mm-hmm. He also had a funny quip about this. And I, usually the videos from shoot around are posted by now, but um, they're not posted. So I'll just share with you here that uh, he, the subject of Alicia Keys was brought up and he's like, basically Alicia Keys wore my draft suit yeah. outfit and then he wore it first, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Cause yeah, Alicia Keys was, was in that like sparkling red kind of outfit with the sequin or whatever. And uh, yeah, that's, that's Grady's whole, that's his whole flow. So yeah, claim the fame before he became also a, a pretty good baseline out of bounds option. Um, so I talked to him about that a little bit as well. But damn, you're trying to work actual basketball conversation in, into our <laughs> basketball show. No, I, I thought you were gonna be in terms of shoot around because it was it was like you know everyone else was talking about the Super Bowl and stuff. Yeah. and I'm like, so Grady, um, your conditioning didn't run really well. Like, how, what'd you do down there? I felt so nerdy listening back to it. I'm like, yeah. Clearly, you weren't in the mood to talk about basketball, yeah. but, uh, you know, here's some basketball. Yes. Yeah, so right, whatever. He was, he was good for it. Grady's a good interview. He's, it, he's a nice guy. It's also always interesting, like, which guys are really good at talking about basketball but don't want to talk about anything mm. personal versus can talk about non-basketball stuff but clam up a little bit with the basketball talk. They can't all be Garrett Temple, man. They, they can't, can't all. Wow, you're really trying to get people ready for the, <laughs> the post-Dennis Schroeder era. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah. Mini sp- no, nah, not even a spoiler. Um, what else was going on at shoot around? There were so mm. there are no injury updates coming out of the weekend yeah. or anything. We yeah. saw the new guys debut. Um, no practice yesterday because of the back to back. You're not allowed. So the Raptors will play tonight, still having not practiced with these guys. Um, but was that kind of the the feel at shoot around? I was like, hey, these guys will finally actually get to you know have a conversation with each other before they go on the court. Yeah, seriously. I mean, practice for them was like 
being able to play that Cavs game. Yeah. We've seen Kelly and Ochai make their debut. Um, after, after a back-to-back, it's league mandated. You can't practice. Yeah. So no practice on Sunday. Also, it's Super Bowl Sunday, so I'm sure – you know, if they got, choose to get together, it's just for the game. It, they they were so close to getting to get together for the Super Bowl and Darko having to pay for the entire spread. Oh, yo, you're absolutely they right. They would have had three in a row right at Super Bowl Sunday. Oh, and that would have really cool, to pay for the whole, the whole boat. Honestly, that would have been pretty sick. Um, well, they missed out, though. because Jared, Jared Allen did Darko a huge favor. <laughs> they got absolutely demolished by the Cats. But, yeah, I mean, they had shoot around today, which is good. Um, it's almost like a mini practice in a way. Like, it's not nearly as long, but, you know, you can just walk through just a couple of things. I'm sure they can hammer out a couple items. Um, you know, Masai popped in the media room at one point, just kind of banter around with us. He looked at me, he's like, I found out you talk smack about me on air. Oh, is that the word he used? <laughs> well, I had to clear it up for air. Yeah. Uh, but it was all you, good fun, actually. We, we bantered back and forth. Yeah, and, like, this stuff happens, you know, you with Masai or Bobby or, or Dark or whatever, but yeah, yeah. do you get a little nervous when he first said it? Uh... A little nervous. It was kind of funny because I was just like, look, you know, Masai, like, you know, you know what I do. This is my job. And he's like, yeah, it's all good, man. And then we, we started chatting back and forth. You know, I started like going back at him. I was like, I was like, yo, Masai, tough loss last night, man. Uh, so this uh, is the Nigeria-Ivory Coast game? Nigeria versus Ivory Coast in the African Cup of Nations in the finale. Uh, Nigeria had already gone up 1-0. And then they parked the bus, which is just like essentially playing like to run the clock out kind of thing. And they, they gave up the equalizer and the game winner. Um, in the second half. So I was talking to Masai about that. And he's like, oh, you watch watching African Cup of Nations? Okay. And then we just just, just, just talk, talking back and forth, man. Masai's a good guy. It's funny how that stuff comes up in every sport. So in soccer, you know, I like I'm not super familiar with soccer, but that's yeah, yeah. I, I've heard that criticism before that when you get into that kind of like shell to protect the lead, like sometimes it can backfire. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's the old, so in, fo- in American football, mm-hmm. it's the prevent defense where like, okay, you, you're going to give up short stuff to make sure that they can't yeah, hit you with the big play. Right, right. And there's the old John Madden quote of, the only thing a prevent defense prevents you from is winning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even there's, um, someone wrote about, maybe it was Mo, maybe it was Mo for the athletics. Someone wrote about recently how in the NBA, teams go to a prevent offense. Oh, kind yeah, of yeah. where like, you, you try to minimize turnovers, yeah. you try to eat up as much clock, and it ends up being a lot of like, hey, 20 seconds in the shot clock, you take a safe mm-hmm. mid-range because you don't want to turn the ball over, you want to eat clock. But actually, you're expected. Your yeah. the actual points you're getting are way smaller. So you're better off just like running your offense and getting your threes up or getting to the rim or whatever uh-huh. early clock. Even so, it's funny how this comes up in like every sport where like the when you go super conservative to protect the lead, it actually backfires more often than not, or at least feels that way statistically. Yeah, it's the Kyle Shanahan offense. Ooh. Sorry, sorry. I watched one football game. <laughs> All right, let's talk about actual basketball. Yeah, okay, so, um, so where do you want to start? So the Raptors beat the Rockets on Friday. Yes. We were there. Fred was back. Yes. Yeah. Um, good game. Let, let's start there because that was a more fun game, even For though sure, yeah. less relevant to today because Kelly and Ochai didn't mm, play in that game. Yeah. Um, man, did you think – oh, okay, I need to share a story, actually. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. So story time. that game happened. And I didn't do post-game media. I had some friends in town watching the game. So I was like, okay, as soon as the buzzer goes, I'm going to go out with my friends and have a beer and stuff like that. And so I go to meet them in the concourse. Mm-hmm. And someone stops me and asks what Will Lou's reaction was <laughs> to, I forget which play it was, like one, maybe the yeah. out-of-bounds call that, that got reviewed at the end. Maybe, oh, you know what it was actually? Jeff Green being so open on that one oh, three yeah. late in the game. So oh. Dylan Brooks hits a bunch of threes. Yeah. I had texted with some friends like, oh, like at the start of the fourth quarter, it's like, I'm worried that like a Dylan Brooks quarter is going to happen yeah. here. Um, what do you think of them uh, showing the tribute video? Because, you know, every, every Canadian player that yeah. comes through Toronto, they always show like a little montage. 
and they saved his for the fourth quarter. They usually play earlier in the game, but we already had Fred coming back. And you had the and Scotty, Scotty Barnes All Star yeah, exactly. video. That's why. Yeah. Like yeah. you could have done two in the first half, but the, those two, like if Scotty didn't make All Star, yeah. then Dylan doesn't get the fourth quarter one. But yeah, it is a little weird optically to play a. <laughs> Uh, hype video for the opposing team in the fourth quarter. He was like yeah. two of fifteen before that video, and then he yeah. bunched, made a bunch of threes. Anyway, you're um, saying, yeah. So someone stopped me in the concourse and asked me what your reaction was oh, to yeah? Jeff Green being so open. Like, this is how big time you are. That's crazy. Like, people see me and they're like, "We don't care about Blake." But can you tell us about what Will Lou's reaction was to a play that didn't even happen? <laughs> like, Jeff Green didn't even hit the three. I uh, I appreciate all the fans of the show. Yeah. You know, that's that's my political <laughs> answer. No, I mean, you know, the the real answer is I I think. When we have the game, when it's on Sportsnet 590, the fan, like the post game also gets broadcast live. Mm-hmm. And I'm always cognizant of that because sometimes I'm like post game, I'm like using the washer and whatever. And like you could just hear on the speakers, it's like, oh, that's Eric Smith. You know what I mean? Oh, that's yeah. Paul Jones. So I'm like, oh, that's, You're on probably, the air. that's probably me being like, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, whatever, just just talking about it post game. So he could have just used the washroom, is what I'm <laughs> That's my answer. Go um, use the washroom. All right, so the actual game, the yeah. Raptors almost blew it. They're they're up pretty big, and then Dylan Brooks does Dylan Brooks things in the end. They they managed to uh, pull it out. Scotty Barnes almost went back to back triple doubles, by the way, uh, thirteen, yeah, ten, right, and eight right. in this one, and then yeah. just was a monster uh, against the Cavs on Saturday. I guess the biggest takeaway on the Raptors side from um, from the Houston game, Emmanuel quickly was really really good, Great. and maybe the best Jakob Pertle game mm. we've seen since his return to the Raptors. Yeah, six blocks in that one. Him and Scotty held down three steals too. Yeah, three steals. The two of them really held it down defensively, did all the grimy work, um, did a lot of playmaking, setting guys up, the screen assists, all that was awesome. But, I mean, Jakob has been playing great ever since that first game back from injury, and it was a good bounce back game because that was also against Houston. That was in Houston. Raptors get washed in that one. And, I, and I, I'm always looking for, again, it's not about wins and lo- like losses right now for this group so much as it's about how much can they grow and adapt and learn lessons. And it was a good like application of a lesson learned because – the previous game, they gave up 84 points in the paint. This one, they did a much, much better job of protecting the basket, starting with Jakob, starting with Scotty. The two of them combined for like nine blocks. That was great to see. I think offensively, that was probably the best game I've seen from quickly as a Raptor in terms of just him getting to his spots. The floater game, the pull-up threes, catch-and-shoot threes, the opportunistic offense, driving and, and getting foul calls. There's a little bit of... Uh, opportunities late where I thought one-on-one when Raptors needed a bucket, he kind of like took too long or took some bad ones and didn't get those to drop. But overall, I like the process of quickly. And then he had a really quiet one the next night. But mm-hmm. what have you made of quickly in his offense with the Raptors so far? Yeah, I mean, I think he's still figuring out. I, I would love for, look, the floaters are going to drop at a higher rate than they have. That's something that's been in his package mm-hmm. for his entire career so far. He's really, really good at it. But at some point, we need to see those become shots at the rim. Yeah. Because too often right now, it seems like he's rushing them or, or like it's a way to avoid contact. Um, and look, it's important to have in your, in your repertoire. Like, but... There is a difference between, hey, Etwan Moore and Ish Smith have existed off of that for years because they can't get to the rim versus Kyrie has a great floater game because defenses have to sell out for his three and his rim, and that opens up the floater game. So right now from quickly, I'm seeing a little bit of, you know, obviously Friday was very, very good. Saturday, less so. I think as a Raptor as a whole, it's settling is not the right word, but accepting that floater a little too quickly. Mm. And, like, if you are – if you're seven, eight feet away – 
and you've got, you know, two hands guiding that ball up versus if you're 14 feet away and you're releasing it way up here and you're going high off window, like that's, there are different qualities of those floater shots. And I think sometimes right now he's just maybe rushing them or, or accepting that as the outcome a little too early is, is all. I thought Friday was better. Uh, Saturday was not. Yeah. Well, I think, if, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but when the trade happened with OG mm-hmm. and we got quickly and RJ back, I think the thought was, Quickly and Scotty are going to be this, like, one-two punch, mm-hmm. right? And I don't feel that way. I feel like Scotty is a one-punch man. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what that means uh, outside of the manga. But, like, um, yeah, I don't feel like Quickly is, like, definitively number two. In fact, sometimes I feel like RJ's number two yeah. a lot of the time. And, and, like, look, that can be fine for right now. Okay. Like, RJ is better suited for that right in this moment. But longer term, Quickly's the guy who has the higher ceiling he can tap into mm-hmm. and who is, and this is why we'll talk a lot over the the remainder of the season of, like, Scotty Quickly actions. It's not about, hey, use Scotty as a screener or anything. Sure. Like, you have to mine that chemistry and see what they can work out together because a guy who shoots like Quickly shoots um, playing off of Scotty is on paper the best two-man game you could have. Whereas, you know, RJ and Scotty can figure some stuff out together. Yeah. But that's going to be better off where, like, hey, Scotty's initiating the the action either as a guard or screen or whatever on one side of the floor. And then you have RJ as a release on the second side of the floor to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do need to see, you know, the quickly stuff develop more now that'll take some time. Like he's not, yeah. he's not that guy yet. And a, a challenge for him is going to be to be able to get to the rim. And, and like, especially if, you know, right now it's not like Jakob doesn't draw attention, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, those are, those are there, the, his pocket passes are pretty nice and stuff. But like, if you do that with Scotty and Scotty's the guy who draws two, cause like no one's sending two to Yak mm-hmm. in the pick and roll. So those are the kind of things that you just want to see more of it and see them figure out. How do you convince quickly to take one more extra dribble? <laughs> Because I feel like a lot of it, you know what I mean? Because a lot of his extra sh- the shots are like he takes off from like just maybe the free throw line, maybe just the free throw line, just under the free throw line just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he's like midair trying yeah. to bank shots or play angles. And that's always going to be more difficult than if you take another dribble and, and try to finish strong at the basket. Yeah. I'm not expecting him to dunk on people like Westbrook or Ja, but like I, I do think that, you know, there are opportunities where he could take one more dribble and just go stronger to the hoop. so i have an idea for this okay and it's, uh so you know back in the Dwayne casey era we heard that the one training camp you know they did corner threes were worth four yeah. mid-range twos were worth only one and yeah. shots at the rim two top threes three just to kind of hammer home to people the new offensive dynamic and then we actually heard in training camp this year that they did something similar mm. um well right. now we're going to take your your boy David Thorpe's uh, second box thing. We're actually going to have five different point values on the court. Okay. And what you're going to do is you're going to turn that float. You're actually, even though that floater range is like a, a decent outcome for your offense, we're going to minimize those for mm-hmm. the purposes of hammering home that you got to get to the rim. Because it's not just like, hey, you'll shoot 45% on the floaters and, and you know, 60% at the rim. It's also you get fouled way more if you go to the exactly, rim. Exactly, Which yeah. gets you the free throw line. It also puts a defense, you know, you, you get into bonus a little bit earlier and stuff like that. There is a, a kind of cascading effect to being able to get to the rim effectively. So right. um, on, on top of which, if you become a threat to get to the rim, it also changes how the opposition has to defend your screener and, and mm-hmm. the guy who's rolling there. So um, there's lots of time. For no, that there's a lot of time, but of course, I'm, I'm not against the floaters. Like, I think that's a really vital skill for no, smaller guards. It's a guards huge to part have. of his game, and it, it shows yeah. a great amount of touch. For sure. I, it, like, could he be like Mike Conley esque? You know what I mean? Like, Conley yeah. is also a guy who always really good at the, the, the little floaters. He was ambidextrous with it as well around the basket. I mean, he was. He's still in the league. But yeah, um, yeah could he be coming like that? You know what I mean? Because I would say Conley's not nearly like that explosive a score, which is kind of what the, the profile was on quickly, mm-hmm. was that he had the potential to be an explosive yeah. score coming out of New York. It's always more of a 
you know, solid point guard, you know, like run the show kind of thing. But but it's not a bad comp because Conley until like weirdly Conley the last two years has finished really well at the rim, probably because he just doesn't take, he only takes the shots that probably, he knows yeah. he can make at the rim. But he's historically been a guy like I think he shot 57, 58% at the rim mm-hmm. for his career, which is not not great. So like, yeah. how do you, you know, how do you accept that still get to the rim? Um, and Kyle, Kyle's a decent example too. Kyle Lowry, yeah, yeah. we're like until a couple years into his Toronto career, he w- really wasn't much of a finisher. Um, and then kind of uh, eventually like went away from, you know, worrying about the rim altogether. You don't want to quickly to go full Conley style where like, mm-hmm. you know, after Conley became a, you know, the, I don't know, the last five, like once he got to Utah, he basically stopped shooting at the rim period. Uh, you don't want that. You need the pressure there. Um, last question for me from the Rockets game. Yeah, what do you up? think of, so the Rockets are building and building, rebuilding-ish. Yeah. They are out of a play-in spot right now. Fred wasn't playing in this game. Ime Odoka benched Alperin Shengun and yeah, Jalen Green for the last 15 minutes of that game. What do you think of that? Because obviously it worked for on the court. For him, but like imagine Darko doing that. Like, like imagine oh, Scotty and quickly are having a bad game and, and you sit them for the last 15 minutes so you can grind out a, an extra win. That's never happened with them. But I, I do think with them, look, clearly he's given those guys lots of opportunities this season. Mm-hmm. I think this is what Yuman wants to do is that accountability factor. Shangun was not doing well defensively at all. No. Like he was getting roasted. And of course, with no Fred in the lineup, they didn't have a starting point guard to start in the group. So Jalen Green had to come in and sort of set the table, one assist, and also wasn't playing defense either. So I think there's an accountability factor that comes mm-hmm. with this. And like, I think maybe sometimes it's hard to accept that in the moment, but like, yeah, I mean, even if these guys are young stars, which they, you know, Shangun, I think, is a young star. Jalen Green sometimes is a young star. Sometimes he's, like, just really inefficient, like this one. But um, still, if they want to get there, like, there's an accountability factor that comes into it. Like, one, for example, when Pascal and, and Fred and OG and Norm and these guys were young Raptors, well, they didn't play well. They just didn't get minutes. Mm-hmm. And then you got to play well and you got to earn your way onto the floor and kind of thing. It's maybe maybe more old school versus, like, this new generation, but I'm I'm okay with it. Like, that's what Yime wants to come in and do, and... You know, Shangun wore a beautiful coat, by the way, post-game. <laughs> Super it, long, lush, uh, like almost like a furry, like green kind okay. of jacket. Yeah, he was just sitting courtside, kind of looking like the Grinch, actually, is what I'm describing. Nice. It was really cool yeah. uh, pregame. There were a ton of kids there who were there for Alper and Shangun. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was cool to see. A lot of guys um, yelling for Fred, a lot of guys yelling for Alpi. Yeah. Um, would you be okay? Like, this won't, this probably won't come up because Scotty Barnes is very good most nights, mm-hmm. but like, Scotty Barnes and Alperen Shangun are at the same part of their career. They're both in yeah. year three. They're both now kind of the hubs of their offense. If Scotty was having that bad a night, are you okay with Darko sitting him down like that? Or, or like, this is obviously a hypothetical that might not come up. Um, but, or, or is the cost of that developmentally too much to not have him on the floor? On top of which, he's by, by far your best player at this point. See, the thing is, I'm not okay with it from Darko because I don't think that that's the, the vibe that Darko's established with these guys. Right. Ime is totally different. You know the exact deal when you hired Ime, you know what it was going to be. It's like you have a strict principle. Okay, so you know you can't act up, otherwise you're going to get suspended. Darko is not that. Right? And that's not to say there's no different ways of accountability, but he's going to let you play through your mistakes. And honestly, I'm like Scotty's like the best player on the team. I'm not seeing, yeah. I'm not trying to see him not play. Yeah. So yeah. Um, there are moments, of course, where it's like they're teachable moments. Like, for example, you had the the the, the, the Cavs game where he looked at Evan Mobley and was like, all right, I'm going to wave him off, turn the back. He's done that a couple times now. Yeah. Right. Um, if you want to like talk to them about that and try to get that out of the game, sure, that'd be great. But I think that in terms of taking this, him off the floor, that's not really going to happen for this team, at least, was especially it, the way that the Raptors are constructed. You, the only guy you've seen actually like quote unquote benched was like RJ in a right. couple moments. 
And even that was like when they had six guys and one of them, like, like yeah. one of them has to not close, right? RJ was, I think it was a Utah game, and RJ was also like two of 10 from the field or something. RJ's lows are a little bit low. I feel like yeah. Melo might have actually had not the worst scouting report because he's like, it's either 24 or four. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, that's that's his challenge too, right? To, yeah. To get, um, okay, the Cavs game was pretty straightforward. Uh, oh, yeah. A much better team steamrolling a, a worse team. Yeah. Um, I guess my only main note here is I looked at the rotation we drew up and mm-hmm. compared it to the rotation okay. Darko actually ran. And first of all, we we guessed the four bench guys correctly. Nice. They, they didn't play great in their minutes, but the Scotty and bench group now looks like much more functional. You've got some shooting. You've got some a lot defense. of shooting now. You've got yeah. a big for him to play with. So um, that group looks a little better. We We got the four guys right. Um, they all played between 19 and 22 minutes. The four bench guys, That's we had right. them between 17 and 23. Okay, so yeah. so more or less the same. Um, the only real change was um, A, Kelly actually played more minutes than Jakob in that game. Mm. Maybe that's a matchup thing. Jakob did not play very well in that game, yeah. um, despite how, how well he's played lately. Um, so that's probably like, they, they'll each get 20 minutes every night, and then those last eight minutes will be feel and matchup and stuff like that. And then Scotty was on pace to play 38 minutes if that was a close game instead of the 35 we gave him. But otherwise, it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, rotation-wise, like, you know, it's probably going to settle in around that. Like, it's not too big of a surprise. I think for me, watching Kelly in his debut and watching Ocha in his debut, I want to hear your thoughts on those guys. For me, I, I, I like Kelly so much, I'm like, I wouldn't even mind if they started Kelly in, like, a two-big lineup. To start, you know, to start games, but I get it though. He's he's mostly going to be coming off the bench, and of course Gary had a, a tough game, so mm-hmm. you know you're going to be in and out on him kind of things. But um, yeah, I like Kelly's fit, man. I feel like first quarter he turned the ball over a couple times, and then he settled in, and they looked great with him on the floor. Yeah, um, I, I mean, already it, love his game. Yeah. I already love his game. Yeah, it's great. I mean, he had three assists and I think four blocks and steals. Um, yeah, took a charge on Evan Mobley. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, yeah, and then Abaji didn't play particularly well. Like, he picked up a couple of fouls and missed all his threes and, mm-hmm. um, and you know, trying to mix in the step back uh, as yeah. well, which may, maybe not yet. But, like, I think you see the appeal, like, athletically and defensively there mm-hmm. uh, in a pretty quick um, burst. I don't think I had anything else. For, oh, the other thing for that game rotation-wise is just, like, I, the reason we did the exercise on Friday yeah. was because... It is hard to play more than nine guys, and we wanted to illustrate that. Mm. I got a lot of tweets after the game about why no Jordan Wara, why no Chris Boucher, et cetera. Yeah. This is it. They're only going to play nine, maybe ten guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the war thing, I, I didn't think he played well against the Rockets. He got his chance against the Rockets, and he, and he came in and just launched the middle of his jumpers. But um, this is what's going to happen, you know? Um, I think for... For Ochai, going back to Ochai, it was interesting watching him warm up and stuff because I wanted to just like to put the eye test to like the pregame mm-hmm. shooting, see how he was. It's much better in the corners than he is from the top of the floor, just like he is in the league, um, in, in the games themselves. Other thing is, in terms of effortless bounce, most players finish their shootout, like shooting workouts with like a dunk at the end. And he literally was just like standing and went into a windmill. A standing like no jump, like no run up windmill, which is like very, very impressive when you even think about it. Like, yeah. You know, so, yeah, um, looking forward to see how those guys pair up. I, I like what Darko did with playing Kelly a lot with um, Ochai so that they have that built-in chemistry yeah. f- coming over from Utah, similar to when um, RJ and, and, and Quickly had come to Toronto. They've been in a starting five, and they've been able to overlap a lot on their minutes as well. Yeah, but and RJ would be the first sub out 
mm-hmm. for New York, so he played a lot with, yeah, with quickly you, in those bench. By groups. the way, we're seeing Scotty go back to the same style pattern he had at the start of the season, where he plays six minutes and then he comes out in the first yeah. quarter, then comes back in to like run with the second unit. Do you like that or do you? So I got some questions about this one too because like Scotty was cooking, right? And he it was cooking. optically it's weird to take him out. Yeah, but they won the minutes with Scotty on the floor in that game. By a point. Yeah. And they were outscored by 25 points yeah. in the 13 minutes that Scotty sat. Yeah. So, like, the hardest part of this for Darko is, like, ideally, you're finding five or six minutes each half for mm-hmm. Scotty to sit. Because you don't want him playing more than 40 minutes, even though he's your best player. So, you've got to find a couple minutes each half. Now, I think Darko's thinking is, well, if I get him out early and he's the first guy out, I've got four starting caliber guys on the floor. They should be yeah. able to survive. If I leave Scotty in for the whole first quarter and then at the start of the second quarter, I've got four bench guys out there with like Quickly or RJ, like Mm. we're going to get rolled. So they're trying to find the right spot. And like, it's not a negative, even though it looks like a negative of like Scotty's cookies coming out of the game. It's actually a huge compliment to him where Dark was like, he's cooking, but I can't possibly Mm. imagine the second quarter bench units without Scotty Barnes to anchor them. Yeah. So it becomes this weird and like, it's not, he's not the first guy that the Raptors did this with Kawhi. The Raptors did it with Kyle and Damar back in mm-hmm. the day where Kyle was always the first four minutes of, of the yeah. second and fourth quarter with the bench. And Damar was always the last four minutes of the first and the third with the bench. Coaches like that stability. I've never asked Scotty about this. Some players have told me before they like the rotation stability mm. of like knowing which point in the games you're coming in and out. So you can kind of, you know, hey, I, I've got 45 seconds of play until I'm coming out. I can go, I can go crazy these 45 seconds. So I'd have to ask Scotty about that. Um, I think they're going to settle into it. I think yeah. Darko has just shown us uh, so far, and most coaches have shown us over the history of the NBA that they will want a set sub pattern. Um, think, you know, where even if the guy's cooking, this is why you need quickly and RJ to step up, yeah. and play like some of them to. One of the two on any given night should be the number two option because you need the other two to be essentially carry the, the game without him on the floor. You, you can't have RJ. System. You can't yeah. have RJ quickly and Trent all have bad nights on the same night. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that's a bit tough. Uh, real quickly before we go to break, just some rapid fire. Kyle goes to Philadelphia. Yeah, we, we knew it was coming. The video was ready to go. I, I shouts that's open gym man. Yeah. Like they he just used that open gym yeah. clip, which was awesome. I'm happy for Kyle. Yeah, uh, I will be grudgingly cheer for the 76ers when he's on the court. I did really, really appreciate that all the all the clips are of 2019 of Kyle beating the 76ers oh, in that video. I loved it. I loved it. I, I, look, I hope Kyle still gets minutes because I don't want him to just yeah. be like, no offense to Garrett Tumble, but like, you know what I mean? Like just like a vet who doesn't necessarily play. Like he should be able to play, contribute to the group. They they obviously moved off of Pat Beverly. They brought in Cam Payne, which okay, but I think he's a better playoff option than Cam Payne. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to, I don't know. I, I, this is still not going to get me to cheer for Philadelphia to be clear. I will be happy for them in the minutes. Kyle's on the floor mm. and they don't have Patrick Beverly anymore, which is a plus. That does, that does help a lot. Going from Pat Bev to Kyle Lowry is about as big a swing in the, will I cheer for your team <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> that you could possibly have. That's a good way to put it. Um, Canada women yesterday. Oh my stressful goodness. day, man. Stressful day of sports. So for anyone who didn't catch this, the Canadian senior women's national team qualified for the Olympics yesterday. So we'll have both the men and women for the first time since the year 2000. Nice. Um, Well, that was really just the men. The women have been there like eight straight Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Natalie Chama is going to be a four-time Olympian now, which which is awesome. Um, She was great too. Canada lost to Spain and lost to Japan. So Sunday's game came down to they needed Spain to beat Hungary for Canada to qualify for the Olympics. And Spain had nothing to play for other than like 
FIBA ranking points or whatever. Spain yeah, had already qualified. Curious. Hungary opens up a 22-point lead. They're up 14 going into the fourth quarter. Like, enough that... I, look, I, I will tease him, so I apologize for this. Grange tweeted that Canada didn't qualify for the Olympics, <laughs> just like us, like thought it was done, thought uh, it was over. Grange, uh, and come then on, Spain buddy. makes a 22 point second half comeback, wins by one, even though they missed two free throws in the clutch. Yeah, uh, they went 0 for two at the line to to see potentially seal Canada's berth. And then Hungary can't get a shot off in time uh, with like three seconds left. So Canada gets in the sneakiest way possible. You need help from Spain. Spain, nothing to play for. 22-point mm. comeback. Um, yeah. Man. And just to win by one, too. You cannot great back look at into the, the Olympics more than that. But they'll be there. They'll be there. They'll be there. And I'm looking forward to it. I mean, the, the women got a lot of really good front court players, which I yeah. felt like was a huge advantage in this whole tournament. They just didn't get to it enough. Yeah. And then finally, uh, Justin Winslow, uh, Mo Gay get 10-day contracts to join the Raptors. I, I don't think they're long-term pieces for the Raptors, but at the same time, like we were discussing, a good organization will do this to reward their best G League guys. Yeah. They'll be their best. They've been the Raptors' best two G League guys. And they each get essentially like a 100K bonus type of deal. Yeah, Justice Winslow will get 166K because of yeah. his, his level of service time. Uh, it'll be noticeably smaller justice. for Mo Gay, but But like, yeah. it's uh, it's good. And like, look. It's, this is a healthy organization. This is a really classy move to do. It really is. They didn't need to do this. It, they it, just chose to reward them. And it helps you get better G-leaguers in the future and things like that. Like people notice when, when this stuff happens. Um, in terms of their fit, yeah, positionally, you don't need more power forwards, right? Like, like Mo... Moji plays kind of a Chris Boucher style position. Justice yeah. Winslow's kind of like a, I mean, they use him with the 905 kind of Scotty-ish. Um, so like there's some positional versatility there, but really I see this as the all-star break is about to, is about to happen. So your 10 day contract is actually just like a couple games here, then a break. Come to a couple practices. Like yeah. they were here today, for example. Shoot yeah. around. Get your bone. And, and who knows? Maybe they get a second 10 day too. Cause the Raptors don't want to commit or whatever maybe. there, there were after the deadline, there were 33 open roster spots around the NBA for all this stuff to settle in and figure out. So um, while they figure out what they want to do long-term rewarding these guys is a, a really nice move. It's I was hopeful Friday when I said that, mm -hmm. that it would happen. Um, glad, glad it did. it's a ni nice look for those guys. There you go. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network, brought to you by Campbell's new Chunky Spicy Soup. When we come back, let's call friend of the program, Chris Herring of ESPN. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wayne Blue. Uh, continue to be joined by co-host Blake Murphy, and we are joined on the line by Chris Herring of ESPN. Heard this man on the low post. Heard this man on Raptors over everything back in the day. Appreciate you always helping me out, Chris. Um, before we were during this break, Blake just mentioned that you're also a huge Usher guy. So how, how, did, you, how did you feel yesterday uh, hearing the halftime show? I, uh, you know, I think most people who were from my generation, I'm 37, and uh, most people from my generation who um, grew up with his music and were like grooving to his music in high school enjoyed it. It, uh, it was crazy just how many kind of interludes he had and, you know, he'd sing three lines of this and four lines of that and then he looked up and the show was over, but uh, I really enjoyed it and it was, you know, I tuned in for that, clocked back out. <laughs> uh, right after I was fine with that. Seems like the game was pretty good, but uh, uh -huh. 
<laughs> the Usher performance was a good enough performance for me. I didn't need the Super Bowl itself. I got one uh, follow-up question. Um, obviously, he did My Boo, which is awesome. Classic song, right? Um, mm-hmm. The hug with Alicia Keys <laughs> brought up a lot of discourse. <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts. Hey, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I mean, if you've ever seen the Boondocks episode with Usher. <laughs> yep, it, it's uh, very accurate. Brought back a lot of those memories. Uh, don't leave your girl around me. True player for real. Ask you, you know, yep, so yep. it was it was one of those moments. But also, and I mean, this is not, uh, I'm obviously joking here somewhat, but there, you know, people have talked for a long time about the way Alicia Keys ended up with Swiss Beats in the first place. So it's like, you know, mm. it's a conversation that he could take up with Usher himself, <laughs> I'm sure, if he wants to. But uh, anyways, it was funny, funny moment. But uh but also, you know, it was, a, it was pretty cool to see her up there. Uh, longtime favorite of mine as well, Alicia Keys. For sure. Yeah. And uh, as Grady Dick joked at shoot around today, in, in Grady Dick's draft night uh, draft night outfit. Yeah. Uh, he said for, Alicia stole his draft night outfit, basically, which is actually kind of funny to say. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, all right, Chris, we'll pivot it back to, to basketball here. So uh, behind you on the shelf, people can see Blood in the Garden, which is an excellent book you wrote about the, uh, the Knicks in the 90s there. Um, man, uh, are you going to have to write a second one? Because this is the most fun and good and relevant the Knicks have been since that time that you wrote about. I mean, I have a second book I'm working on already. It was not planned to be about them. So I don't, I don't <laughs> think that will be immediately. Uh, we'll see, obviously if they continue to play as well as they do and make the sort of noise that they're making, um, then it obviously leaves open the possibility that someone will write it, whether it's me or someone else, but they've been, they've been really entertaining. I think I would say multiple times a week, I'm asked by fans, by other reporters, what, what similarities exist between this team and, and that one. And obviously the game has shifted a hundred times over, you know, since the nineties, but there are some characteristics of, of this team that I think are at least loosely reminiscent of, of what you saw in the nineties. And, um, I mean, all you can really do in this league, and I think the Raptors are a perfect example of this, give yourself a chance. You know, if you are within even reasonable striking distance uh, of a conference title, once you get there, any, you know, all bets are off as to anything could happen. And I think that the Knicks are a team that have been kind of hanging around first, second round contention. They won the first round last year. They you know, they they were close enough in the second round to having a chance to beat Miami. Obviously, injuries in that series as well. Uh, so this is a team that has the potential to make it to a conference finals and looking at what they did during the deadline and just the way that the OG trade really seemed to change their their prospects and kind of uplift them a little bit right off the bat. It's not out of the realm of possibility at all that this is a team that, you know, if the right things break their way, uh, that they could easily find themselves in a conference finals of finals. And, uh, you know, that's not something obviously we've been able to say really at all uh, since the era that I wrote about in that book. Yeah. So this current Knicks team, and I was having a conversation. You know, I've always wanted to say this. I was having a conversation with a league executive. All right. Um, and there we, you go. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard it's a hundred times on podcasts. Like I finally said nice. it once. Um, and we were just trying to talk about, okay, obviously Boston's number one. Right. But like, who is that number two team in the Eastern Conference? And I feel like the Knicks have a, mm-hmm. a bi- as big of a claim to it as possible. I mean, I was also, it was the Cavs game as well. So I was like, you know, I mean, the Cavs also have a claim to it as well. They won with 17 of 18. That's absurd. But like the Knicks, the three-point shooting, I think, 
to me right now is just like really standing out. They got, they got more shooting than they've really ever had. A lot of movement shooting. And of course, they've had guys coming in and out too. But I know their defense is going to be solid, especially now with OG. It could be really great, as you wrote about. Um, but yeah, I mean, if their three-point shooting actually holds up in the playoffs, especially at this volume, I feel like they have as good of a case as anybody as being that number two team in the East, especially if Embiid's not going to be healthy until maybe like the last week of the season. And that's potentially. Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a great point. First of all, if I'm Cleveland, and I'm, gl I'm glad you brought them up, I I've learned in my time on Twitter to be cognizant of a couple of fan bases. Toronto is probably at the top of the list uh, just for all sorts of reasons. I, you know, if you listened or other people heard the low post po uh, podcast appearance I made a week or two ago where I was talking about OG, I specifically said, um, you know, apologies to all Raptors fans that are going to get annoyed by hearing the American discourse on OG specifically with him playing for a, a big market team. And even when I said that, I said, I, I'm well aware of how big a market Toronto is. Uh, I'm talking about American markets. And so, you know, but I know that people are going to be annoyed by the fact that if he's in defensive player of the year conversations, uh, I think that there's always a bigger, uh, there, there's a bigger frame of reference for a lot of people when someone switches teams and he immediately changes the dynamic of that team's defense. And I know that those numbers existed with Toronto too, but it's a little bit more stark when a team in this case, the, the Knicks had the worst defense in the league uh, statistically in the month of December, they had the best defense in the league statistically during the month of January. And they had a 25 point per 100 possession swing during that time that that's unheard of. It was the biggest single month shift in a season in NBA history. So that kind of speaks to that, but to your initial point just about Cleveland and maybe a couple other teams, I would be upset. I, I brought up Toronto's fan base because I would be upset if I'm Cleveland that we're just, you know, blitzing teams lately. Obviously Toronto, but a number of other teams lately that they played really well against, uh, even without a full roster, even without certain stars in the lineup. Um, they're not really getting the attention that they deserve. Uh, but that said, aside from them, the Knicks, like you mentioned, Philly, but Embiid is going to be out. Milwaukee, this is as good a time to catch them as you could really find a uh, new coach in the mix and a defense that sure you add Patrick Beverly, but you know, it, it's a team that really hasn't been impressive enough. So to the point where they fired a, a first year coach. So, you know, there, there is really no team that has an absolute claim on really being a dominant second seed in this conference. The Knicks beat the team that, you know, as of right now, probably looks the strongest outside of them right now for that second spot. And they beat them pretty convincingly in terms of the physicality that they played with in the, the playoffs last season. So this is as good a time as any to go for it. I mean, I like that the Knicks didn't just swing violently for, you know, a, a superstar and a trade or something like that. If there wasn't the guy that they really wanted there, instead, they make a lot of medium sized trades for pretty good players. And I, I think, the jury is still out a little bit. I think that, sure, if you can get uh, Bogdanovich and you can get Alec Burks for what they got them for, absolutely you do that. But I think the biggest thing is just that the Knicks didn't trade any first-round picks. Uh, they still have everything in their arsenal from that standpoint. They added a lot of useful players. Um, I think the jury's still out somewhat on... It can be difficult sometimes to go and yank players from the worst team in the league. Uh, just the intensity that those guys were playing at before with a team that, you know, 
looked out of sorts. And I can be honest and rewatch having rewatched that game the other night that the their first game with the Knicks, where those guys were out of position, and that's to be expected, you know, in a first game. But um, you know, just the effort sometimes, like you and Tom Thibodeau said it, and he obviously had not looked at the film when he said it, but um, you just have to bring effort. And if you're out of position, sometimes that happens, but effort is the biggest thing for him. Uh, and there were just times where it's like, yeah, I, I, I had this in my Knicks book about the idea of when the Knicks traded for Charles Smith, when he had been playing for the Clippers and he was like the leading scorer on a horrible Clippers team and they traded for him. And one of the people with the Knicks that year said, it's going to take us a few months to kind of work the Clipper out of him. <laughs> of just the bad habits and stuff. And I, I always wonder if that's the case when you go from a, a really uncompetitive situation to a hyper competitive one. But, uh, but that said, I mean, you cannot really complain about the Knicks roster too much if they're, if, and when they're at full strength, they're still far from that between OG Randall. We haven't even talked about Mitchell Robinson. Hartenstein is, has been a backup his whole career, but was starting. And I think in some ways maybe fits their starting lineup better than Mitchell Robinson did because of his passing ability. So they've, they're really down four or five guys right now that all would make a massive difference within their lineup. And so um, everybody's being asked to step up a role higher than what they normally would. And so um, that's something you have to keep in mind with this team now too, as they come off this win streak that they had and have looked a little bit rough the last couple of games. So this isn't, admittedly, this is not the most timely of questions because he's out right now and he's going to miss a couple a couple more weeks. But with OG Ananobi, you wrote yeah. this great piece at ESPN uh, right before he got hurt that said how defensive ace OG Ananobi has turbocharged the Knicks dot, dot, dot offense. Um, we all know what OG can do defensively here. We all know how good a catch and shoot three point shooter he is. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if maybe the general to your, to your earlier point about markets, did the general NBA audience also expect OG to help the Knicks offensively? How was that working prior to the elbow, uh, the, the bone chips there for, for OG and his elbow? Sure. I mean, I, I think he, First off, he's because he's a good enough shooter. He's not necessarily a great shooter, but he's a very, very good shooter for what he's asked to do. Um, the guy that he was replacing primarily in RJ was not, generally speaking, a, an average, above average three-point shooter. So just the looks that you're replacing RJ's looks with his is already a step of improvement. So there's that aspect but I also think you consider the fact that, and I had this in the story, RJ was eating up about 26, 27% of the Knicks' possessions, which is not a massive number. It's high enough, but I think it's a massive number when you consider that RJ, generally speaking, is not wildly, wildly efficient. Now, I say that knowing the start he's gotten out to in Toronto. He's been fantastic so far from an offensive perspective, but he, the Knicks had so many possessions that were going through the same three guys in Brunson, Randall and Barrett. And so when you scale back just a little bit on that third option, and instead of having him at 26, 27%, and having three guys kind of just dominate the offense, the other two guys on the court kind of just getting shots here and there, I think it involves everybody else more. You get to divvy up the 27% that RJ ta is taking and, you know, OG takes 17% of the team's shots or whatever it's been so far. That leaves another 10% for guys, whether it's Brunson getting more shots and getting to tap into his efficiency even more. Um, and, you know, because we were talking about the the RG, the RJ and OG um, spacing, that 
you know, each possession you're getting has more space involved for everybody. So it's even more room to tap into uh, Brunson's efficiency. Randall looked better. It's not, to me, a coincidence that Dante DiVincenzo has been going off ever since they made the trade. And uh, RJ has been out of the mix. Just, again, guys getting to showcase a little bit more of what they can do. You had, I think, three or four games in a row where DiVincenzo took more than 15 threes in a game. Yeah. and. Yeah. He is second in the league in how many threes he's made this season. He's firing up like nine and a half of them per game uh, since this trade was made, and he's hitting them at a really, really, really healthy clip, not to mention he's getting to the basket a lot. So it just frees up everybody else's game more. I I, I want to be clear in saying that I don't think it's a knock on RJ. I just think that he is someone that can be a little bit tunnel visioned at times when you look at the last two years or so, guys that have driven the ball to the basket 10 times or more. I think he's ranked pretty consistently in the bottom five in the league among those 50 guys or so uh, at how often he was passing the ball out of his drives. Uh, and so, you know, and not to mention also that the Knicks three top scorers when they had RJ were all left-handed players. So they all kind of occupied similar spaces. Uh, it makes it difficult. And I, again, it wasn't his fault. I just think that um, you had a lot of guys that kind of wanted their own shot. And so now having two guys that operate that way, and then generally three guys at a time that are just kind of floating around and moving around and back cutting like OG does or what have you, it, it creates so much space. And you've been able to see OG's ability to put the floor on the basket, to, to punish closeouts that are um, too aggressive, to just kind of uh, physically dominate certain guys in the paint and, uh, not to mention that the Knicks are also a great offensive rebounding team. And so when there's that much more spacing involved, you, you get to see them crash the glass in a different way too. So it's it's been really eye-opening. What I have said off the top of my head, it was a 25 point per game or 25 point per 100 possession swing between RJ and OG. No, I wouldn't have guessed that. Maybe that wouldn't hold up all season, but that's a stark. I mean, I, yeah. I can't think of too many differences like that. So it's, sure. it was the right trade for the Knicks all day long. It's again, going back to the idea that they didn't give up mm -hmm. any first rounders and any of these deals they've made is, is mind boggling uh, considering how much improvement they've already shown when they're healthy. Yeah, there you go. Chris, we've run out of time. Unfortunately, we got to take this break, but we appreciate you. We'll be checking in on the growth of OG and honestly the growth of RJ as well, because he's done some good things in Toronto, but we got to take he this has. break. Been your host, Willow. You've been listening to the Raptor Show on the Sports Radio Network, brought to you by Campbell's new Chunky Spicy Soup. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Ben Blue. Continue to be joined by co-host Blake Murphy. And a big thanks to Chris Herring of ESPN. Sorry to cut Chris off. Had to go to that break, but it was a good discussion about how OG's doing with the Knicks. By the way, the funniest thing with the Knicks that he outlined, which it was never really discussed in basketball, is just having all three lefties, right? Because it was like Brunson, it was Randall, and it was RJ and them crowding up the space. Like you talk about so much in baseball, for example, I'm sure Jay's Talk Plus, you guys always talk about left hand, right hand, and kind of thing. And it's just like not talked about, but the way Chris was breaking it down was like, essentially they're all kind of cramping the exact same space. And I just never had thought about handedness ever in, uh, in basketball, but uh, that was a cool discussion. We're going to move on to segment three. So as promised earlier, we're going to talk a lot about Victor Wamanyama. So bringing in Victor Gall, uh, Victor Gall, Ben Golliver of the Washington post. Uh, 
Yeah, I should call you Victor Golliver because that's that, that's what we got you on the show. We we keep talking about Victor. How you doing, man? No, that sounds like it's got a great ring to it. I'll take it, man. How are you guys doing? Oliver. Good, man. Uh, it was better before. You guys I... must be pumped. Is this your first chance to see him? Is that right? Yep. I saw him in Summer League, which was sick. Um, but Summer League was like so chaotic. And I, I forgot who was even on that Spurs Summer League roster. Um, but this will be like the first like actual true NBA game to see him at. So I'm really, really pumped to see Victor, man. Okay, Ben, I actually have a, a non-Victor question for you before we get into the Victor stuff. Uh, right. Because you wrote for the Washington Post ye- yesterday about one of the craziest uh, games in college basketball that we'll see this year. Caitlin Clark going for the all-time NCAA scoring record. She's got 31 entering the fourth. You think, oh, this is it. She's only eight points away. And then she gets shut down for an entire fourth quarter. We got to wait one more game to, to see this. Um, man, how, how cool has it been to uh, to be on the Caitlin Clark record watch? And uh, how crazy to see her get shut out for a fourth quarter in a, in a big upset. No, that was well. First of all, good news. The Spurs still have a summer league roster around Victor. So you're going to be able to still see that summer league quality uh, when they're there in Toronto. I'm see uh, the Caitlin Clark thing was wild. This was like the first time in history where scoring more points was actually like kind of not good for her because uh, had she waited and not set the record on Sunday at Nebraska, she could do it at home in front of all friends and family in Iowa. And it's going to be a huge scene there on Thursday. I'm actually going to that game on Thursday. They're oh, playing wow. Michigan uh, at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. I'm expecting it to just be like kind of a religious experience, a revival for all the uh, Hawkeyes fans over these last four years to kind of celebrate her. But uh, it just seemed like she was in her head a little bit in that fourth quarter. She, obviously, the record's been hanging over her for weeks, uh, you know, if not all season long. You heard Kelsey Plum say recently about how she kind of went into a dark place and was almost overwhelmed by the pressure of that record uh, when she was setting it for Washington uh, back in 2017. So uh, I imagine it's going to be a lot of relief, a lot of happiness, a lot of joy once this is all behind her. But we know she's getting eight points on uh, Thursday. There's no question about it. I think it's 124 straight games for her in double figures uh, ever since uh, her freshman year, the only time in her career she was held under 10. She hasn't been held under 20 all season long. And of course she was going nuts through three quarters to get 31 against Nebraska. So uh, we talk a lot about her as this like charming Pied Piper, this very emotional character. Somebody wears her heart on her sleeve. When it comes to scoring, Caitlin Clark is a robot. I mean, nobody has produced as consistently as reliably night to night as she has in college basketball. I think she's a very worthy all-time scoring champion. And once she passes Kelsey Plum, she gets to take a, a run at Pete Maravich too. So that's pretty fun as well. Yeah, I was going to say, um, the fun, the one of the most fun thing is not even just on the court. It's just like seeing the, the videos of people lining up outside the arena and just like a walking shot of like how long the line is to get into each and every one of these games. And I saw someone make the point online yesterday. It was like, there's nobody in men's basketball in the collegiate level that's creating anything close to this type of like, you know, no, motion. Essentially, if, if Wemby went to college, is the only thing we would have Honestly. we would have gotten right. Like that's what we have needed. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it's it's, it's gonna no, be awesome. I mean, to see. think about this. Like, and not to go too inside baseball, but I'm trying to decide. You know, for All Star Weekend, going to Indianapolis. Like, where should I go? Like Thursday to see Caitlin, or do I got to get to All Star Weekend early? I'm asking myself, well, what's going to happen in the Rising Stars Challenge that's like more newsworthy to more people than Caitlin Clark setting this record? I got to say, I, I'm I'm Team Caitlin on this one. I think, um, you know, it, these records don't get broken very often. I think it's like three times in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, you know, she has a chance to really run it up here because she's got you know, a number of regular season games left after Thursday. 
plus the conference tournament, plus the NCAA tournament. So she could put this record in a pretty uh, difficult to reach place. Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, it's kind of a no brainer. And I hope Webb Yama shows up at the Rising Stars Challenge and proves me wrong, goes out mm-hmm. there and has a triple double or does something fun so that I feel that FOMO uh, if I don't get back in time. Yeah, was the, when was the last time we had a, a a truly great Rising Stars Challenge moment? Never. <laughs> like, Ky, remember when Kyrie was crossing up? Um, who was it? Tim Hardaway. Him, him, and Tim Hardaway had a one on one for a while. Yeah. Well, there was Luca and Trey shooting half court shots. You remember that one? That oh, was pretty. Yeah, good. That, that was, was in Chicago, I yeah. think. Yeah. That was kind of cute. Yeah. 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 Not a lot's gonna happen in those games. Like, may I don't know. Even even like the only way is like somehow shoehorn it so we get Wemby Chet playing one on one. Oh, and I would, you, you, know can't, you yeah. can't get that. So. I would love that because I feel like well, we and Chet have obviously played each other a lot, even just like the, you know, France, USA kind of thing too. But when they go up against each other, I love it. Like they both like take that matchup really personally. Um, yeah. I mean, what do, you, what do you make of Wemby's just like overall competitiveness when it comes to like playing against these other stars? Because he had the same deal playing against Giannis and KD as well. No, I mean, there's two dogs, Chet and Wemby. There's no question about it. They're not backing down. They're not trying to be friends with anybody. Um, they're team-oriented guys, and so they they tend to, you know, form good bonds with their teammates and just try to restrict everything else, um, you know, kind of before, during, and after games. Uh, Wemby's season has been really interesting. You know, I was looking back at, like, the game logs today. He hasn't played 34 minutes in a game since November, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about. You know, he had that really strong start to the season. I think I came on here and – we were really talking him up. And since then, San Antonio has been very careful with his minutes. He did have some minor injury issues that kept him out of back-to-backs, maybe put him on a little bit more of a minutes restriction. But this guy is an absolute monster, still hiding in plain sight. He's now averaging 20 points, 10 rebounds, three blocks per game. There's only three guys who have done that in their rookie year. You've probably heard of them, Shaquille O'Neal, Alonzo Mourning, and David Robinson. And all those guys went to college for multiple years, right? So that's uh, some pretty good company for Wemby, who just turned 20 to be in. But then if you go look at the per 36 numbers and you start to wonder, like, what's this guy going to look like when he actually gets playing time? They're absolutely outrageous. I mean, he'd be averaging 26 points, 13 rebounds, four assists, and four blocks per 36. I mean, those are wild numbers. And so I think the combination of San Antonio not doing anything to support Wemby, plus uh, limiting his minutes a little bit, plus the team being you know so bad that people have kind of overlooked him, I'm not sure Wemby's actually getting enough attention for what he's done during this rookie season. And I know he really wants that rookie of the year. It seems like he's trying to push his way back into that conversation by putting up big numbers and trying to do what he can in those one-on-one matchups against Chet. But I really wonder how are the voters going to handle this thing? How would you guys do it if you had to vote? At the midseason point, I said Chet because all of his minutes were so important, so uh, relevant to the playoff chase. But, of course, Webby has bigger numbers. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. And I, I kind of broached it earlier in the season of, like, I'm not, I'm not sure which way I go. You know, it's not most valuable rookie. It's rookie of the year. So, that pro- I, I think I'd probably go Wemby at this point. Chet is obviously, you know, what he's done matters more because of how good the Thunder are. But you also look at what he's done being in the team context that he's in and having the help that he has. I think what Wemby's doing is more impressive. You mentioned David Robinson, Shaq, Alonzo Mourning uh, to do the 20 points, 10 rebounds, three blocks. And none of those guys were averaging three assists a game either, which Wemby is, uh, <laughs> is also yeah. doing. So... Look, the minutes have come down. The numbers are still really strong. If we compare to early in the year when you came on with us and we were fresh off the KD back-to-back where he had, you know, taken some lessons from that game and looked a lot better the second time out, what has that part of his season been like overall now that we're a couple months in here where, 
you know, that ability to, yes, respond to challenges from a, like, uh, psychological and, like, energy and getting up for a level. But as teams have tried to do different things to take Wemby's game away from him, what, where has that growth been? What have you seen in that regard from just, uh, you know, hey, improvement week to week as teams throw new stuff at him standpoint? I think the biggest development for Wemby's last couple of months has been his patience. You know, this is not a guy who's accustomed to losing. If you watch all of his childhood videotapes, you know, when he's played against these other kids, I mean, look, Wemby's team is not losing very often over there in France when he's in fourth grade, right? I mean, he's just absolutely annihilating everybody. It's a very long season. I think it's been a demoralizing season at times. There haven't been all that many high moments for the Spurs. A lot of moral victories where, like, you can see certain developments like his improved passing that you mentioned or, you know, a really nice head-to-head show against Giannis uh, not too long ago where he's getting all these incredible block shots around the rim and, uh, you know, drawing multiple defenders, setting his team up with a potential, you know, game-winning three opportunity. But it's really been a test of his patience, and we'll see how long he remains patient. You know, San Antonio has decided to slow play this thing. And I look back at that trade deadline last week. You know, we always talk winners and losers. Stick a fat L on the San Antonio Spurs forehead. I mean, it's just, to me, unconscionable. They wouldn't go out there and try to at least grab some type of a point guard, some kind of an organizer, when it didn't really seem like the price was so high. You look at what Monty Morris went for. Come on, you can't go get a Tyus Jones. Uh, You can't go get a Malcolm Brogdon. You've got some future picks in the stash. Give this guy someone who can at least organize the offense because I think, you know, probably the the most negative development of Wemby's year is that he's become, in some cases, pretty reliant upon his jumper for offense because he doesn't have this great smooth flow uh, working with his teammates. You know, they don't have a lot of guys who are really naturally attuned to setting him up on the offensive end. And so he winds up settling for a lot of threes. His three-point percentage number uh, is not very impressive. A lot of those shots are tough shots you probably just don't want in a super efficient offense. And you look at San Antonio, no surprise, they're bottom five in offense. So for all the great things he's doing around the basket, all the incredible paint scoring, the finishing, the Euro steps, the, you know, the rip through dribbles. I mean, he's got every move in the bag. He's still a little bit too reliant upon himself for his own offense. And I really wish the Spurs had gone out there, made a trade for Brogdon, made a trade for Tyus Jones, just somebody who's a little bit more competent in that spot. And we'll see how they play this this summer because it's not a very strong free agency uh, market for point guards. And then you look at the draft. I mean, I think people highlight Topich as maybe being a lead guard who would make some sense for San Antonio. But this is not regarded as like a superstar top down type of draft class. And so where's the help coming from? Are they going to have to swing a trade? Would they take a chance on a player like a Trey Young? Like where is Wemby's co-star coming from? I think that's one of the most defining questions of this upcoming offseason because if they punt on that and they don't find somebody who can either you know fill that role now or grow into that role all of a sudden we're doing a countdown clock about when does Wemby get help how long is he going to put up with these losing seasons so I think there should be some real pressure on the Spurs coming out of this trade deadline in my opinion yeah you you rarely say that with like rookies but I mean Wemby is so clearly like an exception he's absolutely ready exactly and I think the only thing holding back is the fact that he can't play well, I guess they're not allowing him to play essentially more than 30, 35 minutes. At yeah, most. and I think that that's with uh, a couple of intentions, including sure. making sure you don't win games. Like, like, Ben, you just laid out this case for, like, get this guy a point guard. Like, they had even until the the last couple of games been resistance to play Trey Jones with him, mm-hmm. even though on the season, whenever Trey Jones and Wemby are on the floor, yeah. they are a plus as a team. Like, they are... 
this team is bad, bad, bad. Detroit has almost caught them in wins. Washington's yeah. almost caught them in wins. But anytime you put even like an okay point guard on the floor with Wemby, yeah. they win the minutes. Yeah, and I think, look, I, I get from San Antonio's perspective because I think Pop has given that quote. He's like, those guys who want to rush it or whatever, like it just shows you how little you know about basketball. And I'm like, all right, man, like I get it, man. But like, who's going to say, yeah, I know more than Popovich at basketball. But at the same time, I do think that there is some logic in, in getting him some help and structure right away because – Long term, like there's things that he can learn and grow in terms of trying to create his own shot, but that's naturally going to come within the flow of any star anyway. Every every star's got to get their own shot. In the meantime, you just don't have to always play him with like Jimmy Sochan and stuff. <laughs> so yeah. like, yeah, Trey will be kind of interesting because I feel like Trey with Victor. I mean, how do you guard that pick and roll? I don't think you do. Like, I, I think you might have to commit like four defenders to this pick and roll because you give him a generational passer like like Trey. Who can also space the floor as well? I mean, you would need Trey to balance out the offenses. Julian Champagne's going to lead the league in threes. Yeah, Julian Champagne. Yeah, another summer league guy that we yeah. saw with the Spurs. But yeah, how 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 good do you think Trey and Wimby would be? Like, is that a playoff team for you? Oh, it's an intriguing group for sure. I think you guys are on it though. Like, this team has a chance to make a real jump next year, even if they just had sort of like a Houston Rockets from last year type summer, where they're just like investing in. Yeah, yeah quality veterans, I think. And then they just take the restrictor plate off when Bayama, they sort of unhandcuff them, take the ankle weight off and just kind of turn them loose. I think this team could jump into that play and mix for sure into that uh, playoff mix uh, potentially. I mean, that's pretty hard in the Western conference. So probably playing would be a more, uh, you know, fitting goal, but the Trey combination is also great because Trey is so destructive defensively, even though he's working harder and he's, he's starting to get some of that, uh, you know, that fate, uh, praise online for, oh, hey, look, he's he's taking some steps forward. I mean, it's still a real problem in those situations just from a body type standpoint. And if you've got Wimbanyama back there lurking and covering everything up, uh, that's just about the best big he could hope for. And then once you have those two guys in place, you just need three, three and D guys and you're set, right? Like that's a pretty easy offense to, and, uh, you know, to have from a spacing standpoint and a pretty easy team to construct. So I can see some benefits to it. I'm not sure if that's the, my favorite option for Wemby, but it does feel like it's one of the better available options right now in terms of who's on the market. Uh, you know, he's not too old, you know, Trey isn't, you know, it's not one of those situations where clearly they're not the same generation, uh, but you know, it's not like he's 30 plus and, and uh, you know, kind of on the downside of his career by any stretch, you know, in terms of the Popovich thing, I get why they want to preach patience. I totally understand why they approached Wemby's rookie season as trial and error and experimentation, but we're a long way removed from the San Antonio Spurs being a title contending type team. And a lot has changed in the NBA over the last five to six years, whether it's style of play, whether it's player empowerment, whether it's just a complete lack of patience. And so I think you're playing with fire a little bit there. You know what I mean? I don't think you could just say we could slow play this for two years, three years, four years. Like at some point you have to add talent and you look at the teams over these last uh, three or four or five years, we have lost the more game, most games in the NBA. San Antonio is right in the mix there with Detroit and Houston in terms of the teams that have struggled the most for the last half decade. We associate the Spurs with greatness. Obviously, I loved covering that 2014 Spurs championship team, and it goes back you know, 20 years before that. But um, things change very rapidly in the NBA. You have to stick up, uh, you know, stay up with the, uh, you know, the Joneses, so to speak. And right now, to me, San Antonio, it's like I'm not totally sure I see a plan it feels like they're still just trying to get their feet wet with Wemby. And I think he's going to want a little bit more than that at some point in the near future. I can't imagine he would want a repeat of this season 
again next season. At some point, the patient's going to run out, right? And what you just said was, you know, that was when we talked to you early in the year and it was like, okay, well, why does the starting lineup not have a point guard? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? A lot of the answers were like, okay, be patient because they're going to try a bunch of stuff. They're going to try to learn what is what whether it's personnel or, or scheme or idea you can move forward with with Wemby and there is some value in that certainly um when you look at the way the season has played out Ben is there anyone on this core around Wemby who you are more certain of their future is a part of this core and is with Wemby like like if the Spurs say hey this year was about learning and learning the other pieces and how they fit with Wemby like is Jeremy Sohan for you he's a lock to be a part of this call this core is Devin Vassell a lock to be a part of this core um Zach Collins Malachi Branham whoever have they accomplished in your mind enough figuring out which of these pieces that yes they've been building for years now uh to to get these young guys like like who among this group are you confident is going to be a part of the the Wemby future I'm pretty confident Vassell will be because, you know, his game travels. He's just yeah. a scorer. You can put him anywhere. He's going to get his buckets, and you're going to need guys like that. You know, just, you know, Webby can't play 48 minutes a night, right? So that guy's always going to have a use. I think he's a pretty high-level scorer. I think he has a pretty good friendship and competitiveness bond with Webby. So I think he's a keeper. Um, Keldon Johnson's just a good team guy. You know, there's no reason to try to move him out. He's a fan favorite. People like him. He gets in where he fits in. Uh, he could play, you know, starting off the bench. I think he would work on almost any team concept. So to me, he's a guy that you don't want to just ship out of town for no reason. Um, everybody else to me is expendable. I, I haven't been super impressed with the the Sohan experiment. Uh, I think he, he was really done no favors by being thrust into that point guard role. He's clearly not a point guard, never really has been. Uh, you know, it, it tanks their offensive efficiency rating typically when he's in there in that role. And then I think I look at, you know, whether it's his lack of shooting or just his lack of polish offensively. I do like his defensive versatility, but, you know, looking ahead, do you absolutely have to have somebody like that alongside Wemby? I'm not sure. You know, I might just prefer a three and D wing and, uh, you know, a more traditional lead guard option rather than trying to make it work with kind of a new age Sohan piece. So uh, obviously he doesn't have a ton of trade value right now, so he's probably going to be there for the foreseeable future, but to me, it just hasn't gone as well as I think San Antonio hoped or maybe I hoped as well on Wemby's behalf, the Sohan experiment. But otherwise, they're just not starting with a lot of talent, and part of that is by design. Think about how many trades these guys made in the lead-up to the Wemby draft, right? They ship out DeJounte Murray. They ship out Derek White. As you guys know, they, they sent uh, Yaka Pertle back into your lap. Like These guys were stripping things down to the studs, right? And that was sort of the whole point. So they got their, you know, centerpiece here at Wemby, and it's really now about going out there and spending and, and reconstructing, rebuilding, getting some better talent around him. Because this, to me, does not feel like the young Oklahoma City Thunder with Katie and Russ, you know, Brody and all that kind of stuff. Like, that's not the deal. <laughs> it's just Wemby looking around saying, like, give me some help. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the only question I think last on Wemby is just, like, positionally, do you see him – playing center long-term? Do you see him playing power forward long-term? Like, what do you like about his positionality uh, long-term? Well, so what I love is he can play either, and it, he's actually probably had more success this year since they switched him over to the center spot. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of opened things up for him a little bit more around the basket. What I would actually love to see him is almost in a Giannis role. If they could find a stretch center, and it's really hard to do, but somebody like Brooke Lopez, where he's able to comfortably step out, stay out of the paint, and shoot the three – but then at the same time, he's also able to protect the paint. So you can use Wemby as that roving defender to block shots, get steals on the weak side. I love that defensive role for Wemby. But 
Um, you know, we're seeing it from Chet as well. I mean, both those guys are capable of playing five, even though they're pretty thin, they're pretty light body types. They're making it work and, and they're having impact in that five spot. So they actually accelerated him going to the center spot earlier than I thought they would. I thought they might try to keep that off of him for as long as possible. But you understand why when you're searching for spacing, you're trying to play Sohan and, you know, Collins and all these guys, like things start to get pretty crowded pretty quickly. So I think long term, he will shift into that five role. But um, I think if I, it was a dream scenario, I would love him to play four with a stretch five uh, who can protect the rim. And then I think you're talking about like that's a championship blueprint to me, very similar to what uh, Milwaukee did in 21. All right. Before we let you go here, uh, Ben, it is all-star weekend coming up and you wrote about Mac McClung, man. He's going to try to become uh, just, I think the fifth or sixth guy to win back to back dunk contests, obviously a, a little, not awkward, but, you know, the dunk contest has two G Leaguers in it versus two NBA guys this year. Um, where is your excitement level for this particular class with Jalen Brown, Jaime Hawkes, uh, Jacob Toppin, and, yeah, the defending champ, Mac McClung? Well, to me, the excitement level comes from Jalen Brown stepping up and actually doing this. I think, and I'm guilty of this, I've just been killing the dunk contest year after year after year because guys like LeBron, Zion, and John Morant always duck out. And I can't say that, I think Jalen Brown's going to win this thing. Like, I feel like Mac McClung should be favored over Jalen Brown, kind of no questions asked. But the fact that a guy who is an all-star in his prime, playing for a prestige team, who will get mocked if he doesn't win <laughs> or if he misses dunks and all that, is willing to do it, set such a great benchmark. And it's like we're looking for anybody to lead this thing on behalf of the fan, right? Like, everybody's been looking at All-Star Weekend, even Joe Dumars and the NBA executives before the season – admitted like all-star weekend in salt lake city was pretty much terrible like nobody played nobody tried jason tatum had a record in the all-star game nobody really yeah. cared mac mcclung was great in the dunk contest but nobody knew who he was and he wasn't even really uh an nba player at that point like you said he was coming from the g league so you know kudos to jalen brown let's salute jalen brown here a little bit thank you for at least trying that's the first step and i hope that he does well and i hope he i, I honestly i kind of hope he wins it because then maybe other stars will say, hey, actually, this is a pretty good platform. I should try to take advantage of it and go out there and, and do it. Because it's been an awfully long time since we had a current all-star, I think since 2017, actually yeah. compete in this contest. And sometimes you get the young guys like a Donovan Mitchell or a Damian Lillard sort of before their stars. Uh, sometimes you get Dwight Howard a few years after he's a star. But we want the prime guys going out there and competing. It would be such a better show. So thanks to Jalen Brown. I hope he wins it. My pick is Mac, though. Yeah, well, I mean, if it's not Jalen, then, you know, like Mac winning it again. Mac did take the, the dunk contest by storm last year. And, like, yeah, honestly, if it wasn't for him, like, it really kind of bailed out the whole situation. But, like, Jacob Toppin, <laughs> like, man, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, how am I supposed to look forward to this? He might have great dunks. I might get excited when I see that. But I can't anticipate and be excited and build my weekend around Jacob Toppin. I mean, let me ask you guys, do you remember that his brother won it a couple of years ago? Oh, yeah. I already forget that. No. Because I pretty what, much forgot what that. That shows you how memorable that one was. What did he even do? What did Obi do? Like, off the top okay. of your head, you remember? Nope. I just remember he wasn't wearing Tim's. That's all I remember because that, that was oh, Cole Anthony. Yeah. Same year, though. <laughs> yeah, that one was uh, – I think Cole Anthony just wanted to tell us that he's from New York. That's I think that's that was the message, and it was received loud and clear. <laughs> um, ben Gulliver, not Victor Gulliver. We'll, we'll, we'll call you again the next time the Raptors play Wemby. Next year. That sounds great. I can't wait to, to read and to watch and to see what you guys think of them. You know, I think it's going to be a fun time for you. No, for sure, man. It's a must-watch kind of F game. I, I hope people already have tickets for this one because it's, uh, it's going to be – you can't miss this one. You really can't miss Wemby. He's genuinely, like, 
out of all the players in the league, he's already top five for me, like must watch in person. So, I mean, we'll see tonight. I haven't watched him in person yet. So. There you go. Okay. Um, we're going to take go a watch warmups because he, he gets a good oh, yeah? sweat in. So go, go watch the pregame. Oh yeah. He does that. Like he does that stretching and like he does the splits and all that kind of the weird stuff. Yeah. He crawls on all fours. Yeah. 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 It's a whole show. Go early. That's what I'd say. There you go. All right. All right. We're going to take another break. Been your host, Walu. Uh, you've been listening to the Raptors show on the Sports Radio Network brought to you by Campbell's new Chunky Spicy Soup. When we come back, let's talk with Wembenyama's trainer. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptors show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Ben Blue. Uh, before the show today, I was able to catch up with Victor Wembanyama's uh, trainer, Tim Martin, who trains a whole bunch of NBA players. Um, you know, Tyrese Maxey, we talked about him a little bit as well, but Trey Young, PJ Washington, uh, he used to work a lot with Dwayne Wade. Like, it, it's, a, it's a long list. It's a really impressive list. But in particular, I wanted to get to know what it's like to work with Wemby behind the scenes, who Wemby is behind the scenes, and just sort of talk about the process of how do you generally develop a guy who's seven foot five and has every skill possible. So uh, here is that interview with Victor Wemby's trainer, Tim Martin. Today, we wanted to bring in this interview. We have Tim Martin, who trains a whole bunch of NBA players, but most notably because the Raptors are playing Victor Wemby this week, uh, we're going to ask him a lot of Victor questions. But Tim, I appreciate you making the time, man. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me, man. I'm I'm excited. Love what you guys are doing. So it's good to be here. Hey, I appreciate you, man. I was uh so I was reviewing a lot of YouTube tape, and I, I was learning a little bit about uh, well, not just a little bit. I was learning a lot about basketball through a lot of what you do. You put a lot of helpful videos up. We'll talk about that in a second. We'll we'll, we'll start with Victor because I'm sure by this point you've done a lot of interviews about Victor, a guy that you train. Can you just walk us through how you got connected to Victor in the first place? And um, yeah, how you how you two started like collaborating? Yeah, man. Well, um, you know, I worked with his agent, uh, Buna Njai. I've been knowing him for about 10 years and worked with a lot of the French players that um, he represents, like Rudy Gobert, um, Frank Nancilakina, uh, just all pretty much all the French players um, that have made it in the NBA. Um, he represents so um, we started a great relationship um, years ago and, and started working those guys out in Dallas, Texas. Um, and then it just kind of um, grew from there. And I started going to, to France a lot. So I worked with um, with Sekou, who had a stint in the NBA. He was a lottery draft pick um, mm-hmm. a few years back. And then I would always hear about this kid named Victor, 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 Victor Wibinyama. And, you know, you you hear all every every year I always get like a new list of guys on the come up. Right. But at th- that that particular time, he was like 14 years old. And so with that, I would just kind of um, kind of shell shock a little bit, you know, from what I saw from the film. And eventually he just kind of unraveled and, and he blew up. So that's kind of how we got connected. So uh, well, two questions on that. How tall was he when you guys uh-huh. first got connected? And what was his skill set like? back then because i think it's pretty amazing that he he's hit the league already with a, a really really developed skill set we'll talk about that in a second but i just want to know like first time you saw him in person how tall was he and, and what did he have in his bag at that point yeah nah man i think he was just i mean he he was kind of raw to be honest um he was at least seven foot at that particular time wow. but 
I think just, you know, the fluidity, you could see it was there. I mean, him just being agile and, and just his, his range of motion laterally and vertically, he, he had all the, the right foundational principles and fundamentals that you wanted. Um, I think when I, by the time I got to him, it was just more about, you know, teaching him the nuances and the, and the details within the details, so to speak. So um, he was always kind of a great talent though. Okay. So this past summer, obviously is going to be a big time because, you know, it, he's finishing up his European career and, and uh, he's preparing for the draft. Um, take me through some of the type of work that you did with Victor this past summer. Uh, was there, was there, for example, one skill that, or one drill that he really, excelled at or one that, that that he really struggled at? I, I'd love to hear your process with uh, how you worked with Victor this past summer. Yeah, so really, man, it was just trying to solidify an identity. Um, you know, I know obviously people have been talking about his 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 frame and his build. Um, for me, I've never worried about that because I don't know anybody outside of LeBron James that has come into the NBA with a with an amazing physique. You know, you kind of have to grow into that and you look at guys like Giannis, Antetokounmpo, and then you have Rudy Gobert or Kevin Durant. You look at where they were when they were 18, 19 years old, just like any high school kid going into college, you know, um, is always going to have some weight issues. But I think for me, it was more so about solidifying his mid post um, abilities. And, um, you know, Dwayne Wade has, has been a mentor of mine and, and just watching how obviously become one of the greatest scorers in the mid post and watching Kobe and, and Jordan um, to try to mimic a lot of those movements and teach him um, not so much about moves, but about movements on how to set up the defender and how to create counters off the catch, um, his face-up game and being able to get to his spots and work his hooks or, or fadeaway jumpers. Um, that was kind of the, the essence of what we really focused on before he got into the league. Okay, that's really interesting because, you know, I, I, I was going to ask you this anyway, but, um, you know, you, you worked with a lot of all-star guards, right? Like Tyrese Maxey's a first-time all-star. You worked with him. Trey Young, you've been working with him, another all-star uh, and I'm sure the list is long, but, you know, do you drill your bigs differently than your guards? Because I, I got to imagine, like, a Trey Young workout might not look the same on paper as a Victor workout. Yeah, man, really, it's just about getting them to understand um, what to do before they catch the ball. You know, I, I think nowadays it's it's a different era that we live in. And, you know, I'm from the old school, so we used to play a lot of pickup basketball. So I equate that with, like, sparring and boxing. You know what I mean? But the way a lot of players train now is just, you know, it's like a, a boxer going to just hit a punching bag and they're working on their their power punches or what have you. And then they're trying to go into the ring and fight. And for me, it's kind of like, all right, we got to really understand what's going to happen in, in scenarios. So to answer your question, um, it's not the same because I my job is to tailor make and, and customize the workout depending on the player. But essentially, the conversations are somewhat the same because we're talking a lot about what to do in certain scenarios. If the defense stunts or doubles from the top of the, you know, from the free throw line, this is what you should be looking for. If you're trying to attack from the wing towards the baseline and you see this kind of read from the defense, this is what you should be doing. So it's just kind of putting the player in a lot of scenarios and then giving them some options to be able to make better decisions. That's what this comes down to. I mean, when you talk about Shot selection, um, efficiency, all these come by making a player really um, precise in their decision making and and confident in that. That's another thing that we really uh, focus on. Mm. Okay, that that's that's all really fascinating, man. And I think for for Victor in particular, right? Because um, you know, I, again, it's got to be such a thrill to train him because 
you know, we've just never seen a, a player like him ever, right? Like the geometry, the skills that he packs into that. How you said you worked with Rudy Gobert before too. And it's like, you know, with all due respect to Rudy, but it's it's an entirely different skill set you see with Wemby. Um, I mean, even within some of that, I, I guess you already mentioned that it's it's really about teaching them the decision making. But there's got to be some like really unique you know, elements to, to working with Victor in particular. Cause I feel like you even saw him, for example, recently pull out that sham God, which is yeah. absurd for a guy that big. Um, but yeah, I mean, is there any moments where even for you, you're like, damn, I, I got to reconsider what I can teach the people considering this guy's like basically an alien. Now, well, I mean, he keeps me on my toes to be honest. Like I've never really had a player that, um, I mean, I could, I could, we, I remember we was actually in Paris one time and we were working on that, on the baseline turnaround fadeaway. You know, kind of similar to what Jordan and Kobe was doing. As soon as they catch, they kind of hit that quick shimmy move and then mm. have a nice uh, turnaround fadeaway. But the way he was able to just pick up on it and, and again, his fluidity and how he's able to to move with such a, a, a essence. You know what I mean? It's, it's really like poetry in motion to see a dude that big. You know what I mean? Big old feet and big hands. And he's catching the ball and he's moving like, like he's my size. And so... Um, I think from that moment on how quick he was able to pick it up, you know, most guys need almost a day or a week to really understand the the movements, you know, with the footwork or or what have you. But for him, as soon as I tell him something, I mean, he's picking up on things very rapidly. And so it, it keeps me on my toes as a coach because it's like, hey, I got to be ready to to keep throwing things at him to keep him engaged because the way he he absorbs information is, is something like I've never seen before. Right. I mean, that's special. That's special, right? You, you that's a it's a really good student is what you're describing right there. And you know, I'm thinking about that Shamgon now. Like, is there an even crazier move that Wemby hasn't shown us yet in the league? Like, because again, like we've never seen a guy seven foot five. Like, if Yao Ming did a Shamgon, I would have fallen over. Like as a fan, I know Yamings back in the day, he had like a one behind the back move that he pulled out in transition. And that was awesome. Like that was no sham God. So is there, is there an even sicker move in Wemby's bag that we haven't even seen yet? Nah, man, you know, he's, he's a, he's a, he's a Picasso of his own day. You know, the, the court is his canvas and and he he'll go up and he'll paint whatever's in his imagination. That's what makes him so, that's why I love him is just really his, his imagination is so profound. And so, um, his perspective is just unique, but I mean, we've seen the one foot three pointers, you know, the, I've seen him do that in workouts. I never thought he was going to do it in the game. And I mean, that's kind of his signature now. And then he, he feels like, oh, I'm going to just do the shame God. So let me try this. Let me try that. I mean, he could do anything he wants to. I mean, outside of maybe tossing the ball up, doing a cartwheel into a dunk. I mean, I don't know if we'll see that maybe on a fast break or something, but you never know. Yeah. You know what? Now I'm thinking about it. I need to see one me in the dunk contest someday. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, it'd be kind of interesting to just see, again, his his, his uh, creativity. You know, we've been speaking a lot about his his character. And I think one thing, you know, you know him so well, but for me watching from afar, especially here in Toronto, um, I like the competitiveness that I see in Victor, right? So I'm thinking about early in the season, uh, they, they play the Suns twice and they play KD. And he wants to go right at KD. Like, he, he doesn't mind getting guarded by KD. I'm thinking about when they played uh, Giannis. He doesn't mind going right at Giannis. And they lost that game, but it was close. Him versus Giannis down the stretch was awesome to see. And then when he plays against Chet, I see that extra bit of, like, you know, there's a competitiveness there. And, of course, OKC's got a much stronger team at the moment. But one-on-one, -on -one, I don't know. Victor 
seems to really relish going at these certain guys. Do you notice that competitiveness in Victor that I think that pretty much all these great players, especially guys that you mentioned, Dwayne Wade, for example, like, you know, pretty much all these guys, in order to be great, you got to have that extra edge in terms of competitiveness. Oh, man, he he hates losing way more than he loves winning. And and some people, that, that goes right over a lot of people's head. But when you're working with a guy that hates losing, I mean, it, there's a different type of ferociousness if that's even a word on how they go about the game of basketball. I mean, you hear about the Mamba mentality and you hear about Jordan, you know, his competitive spirit. What makes Victor great is his mentality is in that those ranks. Um, I mean, whether we're playing chess, I know I've, I've done a lot of different things with him off the, off the court, but it's like, that's a guy that really hates losing. And, and if he loses, he's not going to be too happy to where now you're going to see a whole different type of player probably the next game. So it's been an adjustment even this season, I think, because he's never lost this much. Um, but I think we all know the the famous cliche, you know, you have to learn how to lose before you know how to win. And, mm. and it's league, I mean, you're dealing with the best players in the world. So I think this has been the biggest adjustment for him. But the one thing I could bet on is that he's going to, always come back with with um a vengeance <laughs> yo that's 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 awesome man what a life man you playing chess with victor <laughs> yeah that's nah, he's a cool I, I can't beat him either that's that's what's frustrating for me you talk i hate losing too so you can only imagine like if, after i take my l's it's like all right stack them back up again we're going again <laughs> nice yeah i mean that's how it should be though you know that's how it should be you know that that's i'm, I'm thinking about so this is only the beginning of his career, and he's already put out like 20. He pretty much puts up whatever stats he wants to. I think he's like leading the league already in blocks, which is not a surprise. I mean, start of the season, it was really funny to see guys try to go against him. I think Wiggins tried to do his one of his signature. He's got like that Penny Hardaway move that he does, and he tried to do that against Victor. He just got blocked so easily. I remember Kyrie got blocked by him too. Like a lot of guys had to change their games, but this is just year one. I'm thinking about, you know, the improvement in next year, into the next five years, and the next 10 years, right? Um, man, like, what's that even gonna look like? Like, what are the steps that you're gonna take to to get them even better for next year, for example? Yeah, I think you know. Usually, what I do is just at the end of the season, it's it's we always got to see where the mental is. You know, where's his mind at? Where is some of the things that he's learned in terms of his routine? You know, I think that's the biggest difference from coming from Europe to the NBA. Um, is just the amount of games you're playing weekly. And then now you're also shifting time zones. You're playing in different altitudes. The weather is different. You may be playing in Portland one night. It's raining. And then you have to fly across the country to Miami and change, you know, three different time zones. So getting a better understanding of, of the routine that we see fits for him and what doesn't fit and what needs to be altered and then kind of reverse engineer back to the basics, which is, you know, maybe we got to work on some low post moves or you know, some pick and pop stuff, whatever the case may be. Mm. No, it's true. Cause you know, I actually really appreciate it, Victor, because, um, you know, after the draft and after summer league, he did, he said like, you're not going to see me for a while. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm just going to try to like go off the grid. And, you know, you see that sometimes from guys like LeBron, for example, you would famously say like zero dark 30. And then for the playoffs, he won't use social media or at least won't post. Um, but I appreciate that for Victor, right? Cause like for a guy that young to realize that he's got to take that space to, to make, opportunities for himself to rest to to balance out the rest of his life like he just seems like a worldly character and i think that mentality is going to set him up really nicely because you know again i i'm only see, speaking from seeing him from afar but it seems like he already has a lot of his life figured out you know what i mean and now he's just got to get better at his craft and for a lot of players you got to figure out your life first and then you got to figure out the rest of it right but um i'm curious to hear from your perspective like 
you know, just speak to Victor's character in terms of just his preparativeness as like a as a person. Man, he's one of my favorite just people. I mean, mm. even when I think about him, I don't even really think about basketball just because over the years we've been able to, you know, form our own unique uh, relationship. But I think he's just a fascinating person. Um, he always has some of the most engaging conversations. Um, and and we're both very kind of eccentric in our own way. So I think that's kind of what, what brings the synergy for us when we're in the gym. You know, we're able to kind of just try different things and see what works and what doesn't work. And so in terms of his character, I mean, wh whatever you would think a professional player should be in terms of their mentality, I mean, he represents that and embodies that to a whole nother level. Um, and I hear stuff on, on the Internet about how great he can be, but what's going to make him great is obviously his 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 mental, mm. you know, and just how he he views things and his perspective on just not just basketball but life in general it's it's so unique man it's actually refreshing because he has a lot of new ideas and, and new concepts that maybe some of us in in this uh basketball industry never even fathomed or thought about so um he's just he's a special person man all the way around yeah wow so can't can't wait to see Victor in person. I remember seeing him in summer league. The hype was crazy too, because I think that's the thing with him. Right, you come in. There's there's so much. I mean, he stands out. Literally, he stands out. Even on the basketball court, he stands out, which is hard to do at the NBA level. Um, there's so much extra attention. I just remember summer league. Like I never seen the second bowl of Thomas and Mac like opened up for all the fans to come in. Like, and I just remember like even the excitement of myself just looking at this guy. I was like, damn, like he can do anything he wants on the court, but. How is he going to handle that with all that attention? And he seems really grounded, which is really cool. Because, again, you forget the fact that he's like 19 or 20 years old or whatever, however old he is right now. Um, I wanted to pivot off of Victor if, for just for the last couple of minutes. Um, and I want to ask you about working with Tyrese Maxey. So he, he made the All-Star this year. Um, if he played the Raptors exclusively, he would have been All-Star a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> Tyrese always yeah. kills the refs. So I want to ask you about Tyrese. Uh, what's what's it been like working with him, and how rewarding is it when you when you get a guy who gets to the All Star game for the first time? And I, I love Tyrese. He's another guy similar to Vic. Like he's he's like a little brother. You know, I've been working with him since he was in ninth grade in high school, and um, just to see his progress over the years, man, it's it's cool because what, what's fascinating for me and it's really surreal is that we've had these conversations. You know, so early on in high school or even when he was at Kentucky, like, you know, he's saying that my dream is to become an NBA All-Star and to really see it come to fruition. But understanding what, you know, behind the scenes, what the work and just the on and off court stuff that he's had to deal with over the years of trying to solidify his role in this league and, and become the player he is. I mean, he's had to overcome a lot of hurdles, too. It wasn't just a, you know, a zero to 100 kind of thing. It was a, an emotional roller coaster, too. So for me just being close with his family and, and seeing, you know, how deserving he is too, man. Like this dude, when I say put in work, there's probably not a, a harder worker out there than Tyrese Maxey. I mean, he loves the grind. And so when you're around a player like that as a, as a, as a developer like myself, it makes my job easier. And it's, it's cool to be able to be um, rewarded to go into a gym where a guy is going to push you sometimes too, to, to work better. So he's been great and I'm, I'm extremely happy for him. Yeah. You know, last question on this, just just about Tyrese. But um, 
you know, as a Raptor fan, I'm watching these games and I'm like, this guy killing us. He got 30 again. He had like a 40 piece against the Raptors. I know that he's already got 50 now, but his previous career high was 40 something. It was against the Raptors. He talked about how much he loves coming to Toronto. They, they, they he played us uh, in the playoff series. And I think the one thing I'm like, I can't even hate this guy because like he's always smiling. He's always got, he cooks you with a huge grin on his face. Um, yeah, just tell me, do you know where his positivity comes from? Because, you know, sometimes I watch him, I'm like, damn, I, I wish I could hate you, but I kind of love you, yeah. even though you're dropping 30 against my team. I mean, his energy is so infectious. It's it's really contagious in so many ways. And uh, like, I, I don't know if he's ever had a bad day. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's what he makes it seem like, though, you know, but I think it's it's just a testament, man, to his family, his mom and dad. Uh, Tyrone and Denise, you know, they raised a, a great human being, man. And what you see on the court, he's just like that off the court. You know what I mean? Always has energy. He don't even drink coffee. You know what I mean? Which is like, <laughs> it's it's amazing to see somebody that have, have that much energy just, you know, uh, by nature. But um, yeah, his, his, his family is just A1 and they do things the right way. And, and you know, um, who he is on and off the court is just, it's cool to to see him you know, have this success and being able to share it with his people. All right. Well, Tim, you know, I know you got another interview, got a lot of busy things to do. So I appreciate you. Um, and yeah, let people know where they can find some of your work. Cause again, I, I was watching a lot of your YouTube videos. I think for anybody watching them, like at any level of hoop, like it, there's going to be some very useful things that you can yeah. take out of those. So yeah, let people know where they can find your work. Yeah, man. I, th I think the easiest way to find me is to just if you if you just go to Google and type type in Tim Martin basketball or check me out on Instagram um, at Tim Martin B ball. Um, you could also uh, check me out on my website, TimMartinIQ.com. Um, we'll be posting up a lot of new stuff coming up soon, and and definitely yeah, stay tuned. All right, appreciate you. Okay, that was our interview with uh, Tim Martin, trainer for Victor Romanyama. Um, imagine playing chess with Victor. That's kind of cool. What a lifestyle. My mic was not on. Uh, how uh, how large would the pieces be? Like, does he get, like, extra tall pieces so that when he reaches down to get it? I don't, uh, I don't know. I guess chess is a game where the length doesn't necessarily uh, necessarily come in handy, but it's still, it's still amusing. Yeah. That's a bar. That's another accidental Bronson right there. Playing yeah. chess with Wemby in Paris. Like, yeah. Uh, anyway. By the way, Victor... Um, Action Bronson is an incredible food show. Shout really? Shout to Orn for putting me on. Yeah, yeah, it's on YouTube. Damn. It's a really good one. They I'm really hungry right now, so. I mean. We could do it. Okay. There you last go. four minutes. It's time now for uh, just talking <laughs> about food. Crack one of these cans, man. Yeah. Talk about soup with Action Bronson. Uh, no, it's time now for Between the Lines brought to you by Bet Rivers. Take a chance. So we have spent the last hour hearing a lot about Victor Wembenyama. Uh -huh. However, this is a Spurs team that is 10 and 43 for all the great things Wemby Oof. does, for all the great things he's going to do. This is not a team that wins basketball games. Even with him on the floor, they've been outscored by about seven points per 100 possessions. Mm. So the Raptors are 5.5 point favorites. Over under set at 237. On the injury side, uh, almost completely clear for both teams. Charles Ooh. Bassey's out for the Spurs. That's it. There are a bunch okay. of guys in the G League, but Raps have everyone they need available. Spurs have everyone they need except for Bassey uh, available. Spurs team... Was looking a little bit better okay. for a stretch. They found a new starting lineup that is plus 22 in their 202 minutes together. Uh, they won a couple games with that group, but they're back now to having lost uh, seven in a row. They just lost at Miami, at Orlando, at Brooklyn on this road trip. So teams, yeah. you know, who the Raptors and Raptors fans are familiar with. So, yeah, Wemby caps out at 31 minutes now. He usually plays about 26. 
they lose his minutes, but the starting group's been good. The Trey Jones pairing's been good. How are you feeling about this one? I, first and foremost, like, I, I do expect the Raptors to win. Like, this is a, for the Spurs, are a really young team coming on the road. They're already struggling on this road trip. You just got to keep that thing going, you know? Like, and I think if the Raptors find a way to, um, you know, again, just get your offense going, get out in transition, turn this team over, you should be able to establish a, a lead and hopefully play within it. Like, I don't want to see a repeat of last time. Mm-hmm. Even though that was very exciting, the Raptors won in overtime. Uh, you know, Scotty had that generational quarter in the fourth quarter. Um, I don't want to see a, a come-from-behind effort against the Spurs. Like, I want to see the Raptors really come out and just establish, you know, their strong play. Like, I want to see a repeat of the Houston game, essentially, right? Yeah. And, and it got close towards the end and whatever, but um, I want to see that. And then I want to see Victor just, like, do things. Because I think it's like anytime you watch him, there's like five plays that he makes that like nobody else would make in a game. So I, I know this is a lot of hype for for just like one guy, but that's genuinely how I feel. Also, about, about would, would the audience have preferred to hear us break down Jeremy Sohan's game? Uh, yeah. Like we can just do All it right. with uh, Wemby. That was between the lines brought to you by Bet Rivers. Take a chance. Uh, Scotty's game against the Spurs last time, like top five Scotty game of the year, maybe top three. That was an amazing one. Um, but hopefully they'll come back this time. Let's just win from start to finish. But that does it for us today. I've been your host, Willu. You've been listening to the Raptor Show on the Sports Radio Network, brought to you by Campbell's New Chucky Spicy Super. It's time to get fired up. We'll talk to you tomorrow.